Welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show, and thank you for joining me on this Wednesday. All right, the 1988 presidential election was a big year in American politics. The incumbent President Ronald Reagan was nearing the end of his second term, and so the Republicans needed someone to run for president that year. They needed someone to run for president that year because Ronald Reagan was ending, he was ending his second term, and so the Republicans chose George Herbert Walker Bush, which was... Ronald Reagan's vice president. And so the Republicans chose George Herbert Walker Bush. And the Democrats that year chose Michael Dukakis. But that ended up being a, a terrible choice for the Democrats because Michael Dukakis would get clobbered and ultimately this happened. The first question goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer. No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. Uh, I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. We've done so in my own state, and it's one of the reasons why we have uh, had the biggest drop in crime of any industrial state in America, why we have the lowest murder rate of any industrial state in America. That moment in 1988 essentially ended his presidential campaign. And ultimately, in the general election, he would be shellacked. I mean, in the general election, it was not like it was a small lose with a close margin. No, this was big. This was like someone coming to your house and stealing all of the furniture and only leaving the snacks. I mean, it was an absolute embarrassment, which essentially just ended Michael Dukakis' whole political career altogether. George Herbert Walker Bush, the former vice president of the United States and now the president-elect, had won more than 47 million popular votes. He had also won more than four, excuse me, he, his, and for the electoral votes, more than 426 electoral votes. Excuse me, actually 426 electoral votes. And so after that huge victory for Bush, he went on to become president on January 20th, 1989. Three years later, President Bush nominated someone working in the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel and also serving as the current Deputy of the United Deputy Attorney General of the United States. He also previously served as the Assistant Attorney General of the United States during the whole Panama thing under the Bush administration, which are the first rocky six months under George H.W. Bush's new administration. And so he chose for the United States Attorney General, he chose William P. Barr. In 1991, when Barr was confirmed, uh, 1991 was Barr confirmed, Barr was unanimously confirmed by the United States Senate. Uh, and in 2018, Barr said, quote, excuse me, Barr said he was just getting settled into retirement when President Trump nominated him to be the United States Attorney General. Uh, in 2019, the vote to confirm the attorney general as far as the Senate was 54 to 45, including one person who decided not to vote. And looking back on it now, I, I feel like the reason why those hearings were so controversial was because of the attorney general's political and ideological beliefs. In part, the attorney general applauded the president of the United States for firing James Comey, the FBI director that was looking into the Russia investigation. That was also looking into potential election interference. He also criticized the Mueller investigation and mischaracterized its findings as a United States attorney general. 
And in March of 2019, when the Mueller investigation was complete, he refused to release it, which caused criticism from Democrats. And when he did finally release the summary of the Mueller report, when he released his own summary, his own opinion of the findings of the Mueller report, what the Mueller report essentially meant for the public. When he finally, when he finally released it, he also drew some enragement and criticism from Bob Mueller himself, the author of that report. Apparently, Mueller had already written his own summaries for that investigation, which Barr nonetheless just decided to disregard. And so, aside from that, the Attorney General was also infamously mentioned by President Trump on the July 25th phone call, which essentially, President Trump asked the Ukrainian president, hey, can you do me a favor, though? And that favor was to investigate Joe Biden. And if you investigate Joe Biden... I will give you your aid that you need to help fight off the Russians who are trying to desperately take over your country. I will give you your aid that you desperately need right now that the, because the Russians want to take over your country with military aggression and with military action and with military force. And while the president was playing around, innocent Ukrainians were dying. So that was the July 25th phone call that ultimately gifted the president of the United States a early Christmas gift of impeachment. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that phone call and you want further clarification, you can listen to episode 235, grab your popcorn. But this is how we got here. And I mean, just, I mean, just off the top of my head, the things that the attorney general has done. For instance, number one, intervening in the sentencing recommendation by federal prosecutors to prosecute Roger Stone and to ultimately give him a, 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 a seven to nine year sentence. But the attorney general nevertheless intervened and say no and said no, we should give him a lighter sentence. Uh, the attorney general was asked about this yesterday and his here's his response to Florida Congressman Ted Deutsch. When you asked that, when you asked to reduce the sentence, you said enhancements were technically applicable. Mr. Attorney General, can you think of any other cases where the defendant threatened to kill a witness, threatened to threaten a judge, lied to a judge, where the Department of Justice claimed that those were mere technicalities? Can you think of even one? The judge agreed with our. Analysis. Can you think of even one? I'm not asking about the judge. I'm asking about what you did. To reduce the sentence of, of Roger Stone. Uh, yes. Can you think, Mr. Are, Attorney General, he threatened the life of a witness. And the witness and said he didn't And you view that as threatened. a technicality, Mr. Attorney General. The, 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 has, the witness, is there another time Can I answer the question? Can I have just a, a few seconds to answer sure, the question? I'm asking if okay. there's another time in, in this all case, the time of the Justice the Department. Judge, the judge agreed with our... You won't answer my question, the Mr. Judge Attorney General. And it's unfortunate. And it, the appearance is that, as you said earlier, this is exactly what you want. The essence of rule of law is that we have one rule for everybody. And we right. don't in this case because he's a friend of the president's. I yield back. That was Congressman Ted Deutsch asking the attorney general a direct question. That was Florida Congressman Ted Deutsch. He's asking the attorney general a direct question, and the attorney general was trying to filibuster. Ultimately, the question was never answered. He just talked for a long time to make his answers seem sufficient. But still on the topic of Roger Stone, here's California Congressman Eric Swalwell remarkably getting to the bottom of the situation and asking what happened. 
Mr. Barr, have you ever intervened other than to help the President's friend get a reduced prison sentence for any other case where a prosecutor had filed a sentencing recommendation with the court? A sentencing recommendation? Yeah. Have you ever intervened other than that case with the President's friend? Not that I recall if you're talking. Does that seem like something you'd recall where you would? Well, I'm, I'm saying I can't really remember my first, if you let me finish the question. I, I, I can't remember. 30 years ago, I was Attorney General. As Attorney General now. Uh, but uh, no, I didn't. But that's because issues come up to the Attorney General within a dispute. And I have never heard so of a dispute. I've never heard of a dispute in the department Mr. where Mark. line prosecutors threatened to quit. Because of a, because so of a Barr, discussion over sentence. Americans from both this. parties are concerned that in Donald Trump's America, there's two systems of justice. One for Mr. Trump and his cronies, and another for the rest of us. But that can only happen if you enable it. At your confirmation hearing, you were asked, do you believe a president could lawfully issue a pardon in exchange for the recipient's promise to not incriminate him? You said, uh, no, not, not to what? That would be a crime. You were asked, could a president issue a pardon in exchange for the recipient's promise to not incriminate him? And you responded, no, that would be a crime. Is that right? Yes, I said that. You said a crime. You didn't say it'd be wrong. You didn't say it'd be unlawful. You said it would be a crime. And when you said that, that a president swapping a pardon to silence a witness would be a crime, you were promising the American people that if you saw that, you would do something about it. Is that right? That's right. Now, Mr. Barr, are you investigating Donald Trump for commuting the prison sentence of his longtime friend and political advisor, Roger Stone? No. Why not? Why should I? Why should I? That's the astonishing response from the Attorney General of the United States. Why should I? Well, Mr. Attorney General, if you obviously don't know, let me just lay out the reasons for you. Number one, in 2016, when Roger Stone was working for the Trump campaign, he repeatedly boasted about his connections with WikiLeaks and briefed then President candidate Donald, presidential candidate Donald Trump on the matter. Number two, when he was convicted on seven counts by a federal jury, he lied. He was he was convicted because he lied to Congress, obstructed justice and witness tampering. And number three, he literally did, as Congressman Ted Deutsch asserted, threatened to kill a witness. Roger Stone said, quote, prepare to die, end quote. And lastly, number four, he said in an interview that essentially the president knew he was under amendous trust, or, excuse me, the president said, excuse me, lastly, he said in an interview that the president knew he was under tremendous pressure and was getting ready to flip. But he said he eased my situation considerably. And this would be referring to the commutation of his sentence. On July 12th on this show, in my opening introduction, I talked about the op-ed that former special counsel Robert Mueller wrote in the Washington Post, saying, quote, Roger Stone is a convicted felon and rightfully so. So here's my point. When the attorney general gives this sort of shrug off, I don't care answer, it indicates the politicization, the politicization of the Justice Department and letting the president do whatever he wants. My counter argument is that Roger Stone's commutation was, wasn't just astonishing, but it was infuriating and another erosion of the rule of law. So is the attorney general not investigating the president's commutation of Roger Stone's sentence because he potentially was involved, or did he not know about it, as he asserted repeatedly throughout the hearing? I mean, this is the attorney general of the United States. This was absolutely reprehensible and abhorrent. 
VOANews.com writes, quote, As the nation's top law enforcement official, the United States Attorney General oversees the enforcement of federal laws. The Attorney General heads the Department of Justice, otherwise known as DOJ, which has evolved into the world's largest law office since Congress created it in 1870. The DOJ's mission is to, quote, enforce the law and, quote, defend the interest of the country, protect it from, quote, foreign and domestic threats, seek, quote, judge, excuse me, seek, quote, just punishment for wrongdoers and to ensure fair and impartial administration of justice for all Americans, regardless of political bias. This is just laid out perfectly. It is clear and concise. The Attorney General of the United States has failed the public and has continued to politicize the Department of Justice. And on that point, it questions his ability to actually render equitable and unbiased justice for all Americans. Just because Roger Stone is a Republican and just because Roger Stone is the president's friend, as Congressman Ted Deutsch said, doesn't mean he gets to escape criminal liability and live a happy, luxurious life. Another exchange at the hearing was between Seattle Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and the Attorney General. The topic is about the protesters who were cleared forcefully from Lafayette Square without Lafayette, Lafayette Park without warning. So the president could do a photo op holding a Bible and standing in front of a church. Here's the clip. To the question, do you well, think that I it think was Pepper's appropriate well. at Lafayette Park to pepper spray, tear gas, and beat protesters and injure American citizens? Well, I don't accept your characterization of what happened, but as I explained, the effort there was... Uh, Mr. Barr, I just asked for a yes or no, so let me just tell you, I'm starting to lose my temper. According to sworn testimony before the House Natural Resources Committee by Army National Guard Officer Adam DeMarco, who was there, this was, quote, an unprovoked escalation and excessive use of force against peaceful protesters. Well, I don't Numerous remember, media I don't remember DeMarco as being, being involved in any of the decision-making. Sir, sir. The president told governors on a telephone call that the way to deal with the protesters of police brutality and systemic racism like in Lafayette Square is that, quote, you have to get much tougher. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. These are terrorists. And he also talked about you on that call, sir. Here's what he said. He said, the attorney general is here, Bill Barr, and we will activate Bill Barr and activate him strongly. Do you remember that call, Mr. Barr? Yes, I do. But he wasn't talking about protesters. He was talking Mr. about Barr, rioters. Mr. Barr, apparently the president believes that you can be activated to implement the president's agenda and dominate American people exercising First Amendment rights if they're protesting against him. But let's look at how you respond when the protesters are supporters of the president, on two separate occasions, after President Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan to subvert stay-home orders to protect the public health of people in Michigan, protesters swarmed the Michigan Capitol carrying guns, some with swastikas, Confederate flags, and one even with a dark-haired doll with a noose around its neck. Are you aware that these protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded? No. 
You're not aware of that? I was not aware of that. Major protests in Michigan, you're the attorney general, and you didn't know that the protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded. So well, obviously you couldn't be concerned about that. Well, there are a lot you, of protests around the United States, and uh, on June attorney 1st, general I was Barr, worried about the District of Columbia, which is federal. In certain parts of the country, you're very aware of those, but when protesters with guns and swastikas I'm very, and I am aware of, flags, of excuse me, Mr. Barr, this is government. my time, and I control it. <clears throat> You are aware of certain kinds of protesters, but in Michigan, when protesters carry guns and Confederate flags and swastikas and call for the governor of Michigan to be beheaded and shot and lynched, somehow you're not aware of that. Somehow you didn't know about it, so you didn't send federal agents in to do to the president's supporters what you did to the president's protesters. In fact, you didn't you didn't put pepper balls on those protesters. So the point I'm trying to make here, Mr. Barr, that I think is very important for the country to understand is that there is a real discrepancy in how you react as the attorney general, the top cop in this country, when white men with swastikas storm a government building with guns, there is no need for the president to, quote, activate you because they're getting the president's personal agenda done. But when black people and people of color protest, police brutality, systemic racism, and the president's very own lack of response to those critical issues, then you forcibly remove them with armed federal officers, pepper bombs, because they are considered terrorists by the president. You take an aggressive approach to Black Lives Matter protests, but not to right-wing extremists threatening to lynch a governor if it's for the Trump's, if it's for the president's benefit. Did I get it right, Mr. Barr? I have responsibility for the federal government, and the White House is the seat of the executive Mr. Barr, let me just make it clear: Not you are the, supposed the to Michigan authorities the can handle of the United States of America, not violate people's First Amendment rights. You are supposed to uphold democracy and secure equal justice under the law, not violently dismantle certain protesters based on the president's personal agenda. Gentle ladies. So this was essentially an exchange between uh, Democratic Congress Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and the Attorney General of the United States. The Attorney General essentially said, I know you may not have heard it over there, but the Attorney General essentially said, Michigan can handle themselves, but Portland can't. I also should add today a little bit of breaking news. Uh, the president has pulled those troops out of Portland. When the Attorney General of the United States dropped the case against Michael Flynn, the president's former national security advisor, more than 2,000 former DOJ officials and FBI officials called on the Attorney General to resign. We have seen this. We have been through this for now two years. The horrifying erosion of the Justice Department. Not only that, but the rule of law is at stake here. We are living in a time where it is, it is essential that we pay attention to what is going on in order to understand the news. Attorney General William Barr testified yesterday before the House Judiciary Committee for a total of five hours. One more thing I want to mention before we go to commercial break here and before the interview that is coming up. In 1977, Attorney General William Barr, he graduated from law school. 
Also in 1977, John Mitchell, the head of the Committee to Reelect the President of the United States, also John Mitchell, the Attorney General under the Nixon administration, he was sentenced to federal prison. He served a 19, a 19th month prison. He served in prison for 19 months. He was sentenced to prison for a reason. What he did under the water, what he did in the Watergate affair. His wife, Martha Mitchell, she knew it all. She kept, she, she, she knew it all. And so John Mitchell wanted to keep his wife quiet because she knew too much. Bill Barr was graduating law school. Bill Barr graduated law school in 1977. And he saw that corruption there as a graduate of law school. And neither ever again did we think that an attorney general of the United States would carry out that corruption, would lie to Congress, and would do these things again. But as the quote goes, history does repeat itself. And yesterday was absolutely a confirmation of that quote. Ian McDougal, ProPublica legal reporter, and also a practicing lawyer. He's going to join me next. Stay with us. If you looked at America like a bird, and that was all you knew, would you really understand it with just that point of view? We've got a different way to look at it from right here on the ground. We don't just see United States. We see United Towns. From where we sit, just down the street, near the post office, by the park, when we stop and look around, what we see are sparks. Sparks of hope, of compassion, of communities who stand firm, when neighbors lift each other up, expecting nothing in return. We're grateful for what you bring, and all the sparks you've shown, and the thousands of towns that we get to call home. Welcome back. Yesterday, Attorney General William Barr testified before the House Judiciary Committee for a total of five hours. At times, the Attorney General appeared that he did not want to be there, and other times, the Attorney General just appeared that he was annoyed by the questioning by the committee, uh, by the committee members. Um, back in May of May of 26, back in May of 2020 of this year, uh, I covered on the show the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, and I covered the situation particularly in a prison in Harris County, Texas, and they are still dealing with a uh, exacerbating pandemic there. I, I covered that situation. I talked about how one prisoner said, "quote I don't want to die in here," end quote, essentially saying that the the the, the, pan, the coronavirus in here is horrible. And ever since then, uh, according to new reporting on May 26, uh, later in that month, uh, the headline reads, quote, Bill Barr promised to release prisoners threatened by the coronavirus, even as the feds secretly made it harder for them to get out. The lead on that reporting continues, quote, even as the Justice Department announced that federal prisons would be 
would release vulnerable nonviolent inmates to home confinement to avoid spread of COVID-19, the agency was quietly adopting a policy that makes it harder for inmates to qualify for release, not easier. The release has been more that more than excuse me, the results has been that more than 98% of inmates remain in federal custody, while a handful of celebrity inmates like former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort has been released to home detention. End quote. Now, in 2018, Paul Manafort pled guilty and agreed to cooperate with the Mueller investigation. Uh, joining me now is the reporter who wrote this piece, Ian McDougall. He's a ProPublica legal reporter and also a practicing lawyer. Mr. McDougall, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. My first question about your reporting is, why did the Attorney General, first of all, um, was there anything that I misinterpreted from your reporting? Uh, no, no, that sounds accurate. Okay. Um, what? My first question is, why is the Attorney General allowing celebrity inmates like Paul Manafort to be released while there are other more vulnerable prisoners? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question um, that uh, uh, I don't think has a necessarily satisfactory answer yet. Um, I mean, so, so uh, among the uh, criteria um, uh, derived from uh, the guidance that Attorney General Barr put out at the end of March, um, trying to reduce the population of federal um, prisons, uh, was that, um, uh, and uh, this actually came from the Bureau of Prisons interpretation of, of that guidance, that uh, prisoners had to have served at least half of their sentence and um, uh, or um, have uh, fewer than 18 months left, and Manafort doesn't um, uh, qualify for either of those. He, he had served less than 50% of his sentence and had about four and a half years left to serve when he was released from home, to home confinement to mm-hmm. house arrest, essentially. So, you know, uh, there are a couple of different reasons why um, Manafort might have, might be in the position he's in, whereas other people in similar positions um, are not. Uh, one of them uh, is he has, you know, uh, uh, expensive lawyers that may, maybe are pushing a lot harder than others and others uh, you know, potentially that uh, some kind of um, uh, sense of favoritism and that he didn't um, really uh, turn on the president in the same way that some of his other former advisors have mm-hmm. um, but we don't we don't know um, uh, we don't know exactly why but certainly he, he has been treated far more favorably than a lot of similarly situated people or even people who, who do meet the criteria of the um, uh, for uh, early release to home confinement. According to your reporting, the Department of Justice never published their policy document. Is there a reason why that did not take place? Uh, it's a little unclear. I mean, I, you know, I think the, there are a couple different possibilities. Um, just to sort of give a, a, a brief um, uh, uh, sense uh, to your listeners for sort of how um, we got to this place and in 2018 a law called the first step act was passed which was a criminal justice reform law in the federal system uh, in july of 2019 as part of that the justice department issued um uh this uh or put out this this risk assessment score that was meant to a uh, system was meant to sort of uh, to score how likely somebody was to uh, uh, commit another crime after being released from prison and there are all kinds of questions about how that's set up and and a lot of it has to do with the fact that they haven't been very transparent but it laid out a set of um you know if you have certain score you're a minimum risk if you have a other you know score above that it's a low risk and on and on and the attorney general's memo in 
March required uh, generally inmates to be a minimum risk to qualify for early release. In January of this year, the Justice Department revised um, that risk scoring system based on some of the criticisms about it being uh, racially biased and, and other factors. Um, what they evidently did but did not say publicly is that they also changed the um, scoring cutoff, so it became much harder you had to, it was a much more uh, you had a much lower score to be a minimum risk. Mm-hmm. Um, why they they clearly had come up with this internally, um, so I got the document that um, contained that change. Why they didn't put it out, they haven't really told me. Um, you know, the most likely answer, and based on what the head of the Bureau of Prisons said before Congress when asked about it, is it's bureaucratic dysfunction. The Bureau of Prisons is not a very run, very well run agency, and that that predates this administration certainly um Mm -hmm. and uh the other possibility is they you know they wanted to say the nice things in that january uh update they didn't want to say the things that maybe would raise questions um there's some question of whether the reduction of the risk you know making it a you have to have a lower score to be a minimum Mm -hmm. whether that plus the other changes made it's not entirely clear how that affects the number of people who are counted as a minimum risk, but um, it certainly raises questions as to why they didn't um, put it out publicly until uh, a couple weeks after my reporting. They did very quietly, the Justice Department issued a, a document that contained the new the new scoring. But yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I haven't gotten a straight answer and, and uh, I don't I don't know whether it was something more nefarious or just simple dysfunction. The, the coronavirus pandemic has exacerbated the situation in prisons almost just drastically. Coronavirus cases are continuing to rise, not just here in, I mean, even here in South Carolina and also in Florida with the coronavirus cases in the prisons. Is the federal government really doing anything to help states on this issue? Uh, states, no, not as far as I'm aware. I mean, they, uh, you know, they've passed the CARES Act, um, uh, which did make it, uh, easier to release people from federal prison, but I'm not aware that um, that there's anything in there to really help state and city uh, uh, prisons and jails. Um, uh, you know, the easiest way, because the federal government doesn't control those facilities, the way that could help the most is to provide incentives or provide funding to help. You know, it does cost some amount of money to, to have to very quickly um, figure out how to uh, um, reduce the population of, of those facilities. But as far as I know, there wasn't anything in the bill that um, provided for that. It was, wasn't, I don't think, you know, the, the sad reality of the United States is that um, politicians, bureaucrats, a lot of people just don't care about people who are incarcerated. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I can't say that that's what, that's what drove Congress to ignore that issue to the extent it did. But, you know, it's just not a top of mind thing for many of them, uh, unfortunately. Mm. Um, according to your reporting, according to your reporting, you write about this thirty-eight. You write about this thirty-eight-year-old man, Blaine Davis, who doesn't make it to home confinement. Um, is is there is there an update on that situation? Um, as far as I know, from um, speaking as representatives, no. I think I believe he's still um, at the prison camp in Louisiana, but. But um, it's been a few weeks since I was in touch with them. So it's possible things have changed, but um, it didn't seem, last I talked to them, it didn't seem particularly likely that they would. Hmm. 
In the Attorney General's opening statement yesterday, he said, quote, We are in a time when the political discourse in Washington often reflects the politically divided nation in which we live, and too often drives the divide even deeper. Political rhetoric is inherent in our democratic system, and politics is to be expected by politicians, especially in an election year. While that may be appropriate here on Capitol Hill or in cable news, it is not acceptable at the Department of Justice. At the Department, decisions must be made with no regard to political pressure, pressure from either end of Pennsylvania Avenue or from media or mobs. As a lawyer, is that as, as a lawyer, as a lawyer, the Attorney General's, I guess what I'm trying to say is, as a lawyer, is there is that an accurate statement by the attorney general based on his actions? I mean, it, it's accurate in an aspirational sense and in the sense that, that that should be true. I think there's sort of two answers or two ways in which that diverges from reality. One is that you know, no matter what the administration, no matter who's the attorney general, the truth is there is always I mean, political pressure has an effect, mm-hmm. um, and that's just human. I mean. Uh, uh, in some ways, but in, in other ways, there are incentives uh, on political appointees of the Justice Department who can be removed for any reason or no reason at all by the president um, not to <laughs> get themselves fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not, I don't mean to make it sound as crass as all that. I don't think most people in those positions think that way, but you know, it's, they may not realize it, but it's probably it's in, it affects their judgment in some way. This administration uh, has been unusual in the amount of political pressure that the president openly on Twitter and and interviews and uh, press conferences puts on the Justice Department to um, to investigate certain things and uh, and and not investigate or prosecute others. And I know the Attorney General says that politics didn't play enough had enough factor in some of the unusual Mm -hmm. decisions he's made, Um, but. You know, the rules that are in place, for example, for ethics, uh, the ethics rules, and I'm not saying he violated them, I don't don't know whether he did, but they usually talk about not only conflicts of interest or concerns about that, but the appearance of it. And the truth is the aggregate uh, effect of some of the things he's done looks, it looks very politically motivated. Now, maybe not all of those things were, you know, maybe, uh, you know, there are good good non-political arguments for why maybe you'd want to recommend a lower sentence than the line prosecutors originally were in Roger Stone's case, mm-hmm. um, for example. Uh, and there are some concerns about what happened in Michael Flynn's case uh, within the in- investigative apparatus. But the aggregate effect of all of this um, certainly leaves the Justice Department open to allegations of, uh, uh, you know, acting at the behest of, of the White House or, or what they think the White House wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that to most attorneys general would be troubling. Uh, Barr has a particular view of the presidency where he believes, and he's quite open about this, that he believes that the president can do anything. It's this is called the unitary executive uh, theory that the president is the executive branch by himself or herself and Mm -hmm. can do whatever he or she wants. Um, And whatever the sort of theoretical truth of that, uh, you know, in practice, that's not how things have been done generally. And, um, so, I, you know, I don't know that Barr would say it's Im- improper for him to be influenced by what the president wants to do with a particular investigation or not. But um, he certainly put himself in a position where it looks an awful lot like what he's doing is politically motivated, which he may say is perfectly proper. But, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. What 
Why do you think the president has continued to intervene in cases over at DOJ? You know, I, I, <laughs> I think this is a president, um, uh, this is not a particularly controversial statement, is driven by his, you know, appetites and whims and um, and, and concerns about how he looks and mm-hmm. um, to the extent the Justice Department has done things that um, he views as, um, as uh, uh, reflecting negatively on him, it seems, you know, he's been quite vocal about about wanting this extent. Now, I mean, it's also possible he genuinely believes that some or all the people he's said should be investigated or shouldn't be, that he genuinely believes that they ought to be or ought not to be investigated. But again, it's sort of an aggregate. It, and in the way he talks about it, it certainly looks like it's more about how it makes him look. But uh, I don't want to say that's true in every case, but that certainly seems to be the sort of the, the tenor overall. Mm-hmm. Um. Are you are you concerned uh, as watching the attorney general's testimony yesterday and also reading his opening statement and also watching what he has done over over the past few years? Are you concerned that the rule of law uh, are you concerned that the rule of law is at stake here? Well, I don't I mean, I don't know entirely how to answer that. I would say that. Right now, no, Um, you know, I think the rule of law is the United States is quite resilient. Um, There are a lot of competing institutions that tend to keep each other in check, including the courts, um, and uh, which have generally uh, continued to function fairly well, um, certainly with exceptions. But um, and then that's true of both sort of rulings against and for the Trump administration. Um, So, you know, I don't think that what has been done over the last two years, the last four years, is a imminent threat to the rule of law in the United States. I think it could become that, um, you know, if it, if it um, uh, continues to move in the direction it has the last four years. Um, uh, but, uh, and maybe I'm being Pollyannish about it, but I, I tend to think that these institutions are fairly resilient, and although it'll take a lot of work to try to restore um, confidence in them, uh, among a large sex, uh, cross section of the electorate, I, I don't think it's. I don't. I don't. My sense is not that it's. Uh, we're at a point now where the rule of law, as such, is in a broader sense, is at stake in the United States. After the. Sorry. Good. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 I was, I was done. Sorry. Okay. Um, after the attorney general uh, dropped the case into Michael Flynn, more than two thousand former DOJ officials called for him to resign. Um, I've done lots of research as far as historical analogies to see if an attorney general has ever been impeached. Uh, no, that is not the case. I, we do know that attorney generals have resigned as far as during Watergate. Um, when, when you look at everything that the attorney general has done, is there a possibility that the attorney general could resign or be impeached by Congress? Uh, you know, I think that Barr, uh, just having observed him, um, since he became attorney general, is extremely um, unlikely to uh, to resign. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't seem like the resigning type, and I don't think he thinks that there's any reason um, for him uh, to resign. Uh, could he be impeached? Sure. I mean, the you know, I guess I say that a bit um, cynically in the sense that impeachment is fundamentally a political <laughs> game. But you know, mm-hmm. so I don't I don't mean to say that I. You know, I, I, that there is an identifiable impeachable offense that I know that he's committed. But, um, the, you know, the impeachment happens at the House of Representatives and the Democrats um, 
have a majority there. And, uh, mm-hmm. They certainly, if they felt like they could identify an impeachable offense, they could bring articles of impeachment and impeach him. I think it's pretty unlikely the Senate would convict him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, I think it's unlikely to be removed from office. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's not, you know, for, for all of the things he's done, there is a lot of questions. Um, uh, he is he is not unique in, <laughs> uh, among attorney generals. I mean, you know, uh, uh, John Mitchell, Richard Nixon's attorney general, went to prison mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, for his involvement in um, the shenanigans in the Nixon administration. Um, so, you know, as it goes back to your rule of law question, is we've been through periods in this country where there's significant threats to the rule of law, where the Justice Department has been co-opted to, to um, grassroots political ends and And in the the end, uh, the rule of law hasn't collapsed as a result of that. So I'm I'm hopeful that we'll see that happen again. But who knows? All right. Once again, my guest is Ian McDougall. He is a ProPublica legal reporter. He is also a practicing lawyer. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show and really sharing your perspective. And um, please um, come back anytime. Thank you so much for having me. I, I enjoyed the conversation. All right. We'll be right back. In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Jeremiah Patterson Show. On this episode, I discuss uh, Attorney General William Barr's testimony to the House Judiciary Committee yesterday. On tomorrow's episode, look forward to special coverage uh, from this show. We're essentially going to be talking about the coronavirus pandemic, racism, and more. Listen to The Jeremiah Patterson Show tomorrow. Thank you to my guest, Mr. Ian McDougall. He's a ProPublica legal reporter. He also is a practicing lawyer. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Go check out my other podcasts. Number one, Disgrace. It's about corruption and Watergate and Watergate and corruption at the top echelons of the federal government. Also listen to my other podcast, U.S. Presidents, where I talk about the presidential administrations from 1 through 44. Thank you for listening. Have a great day and see you tomorrow.